worship team being willing to share that song with us prior to the service or prior to the sermon. Uh, you might remember that it's the song that we closed out with before a few weeks before Christmas uh, as we were moving through Colossians 1. That idea that the truth is who Christ is. You move away from the truth, you move away from Christ. And we'll see at the end of the passage today the effects that that, that can have. Um, let's bow our heads at this time. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to have a relationship with you, to be joined back to you in that relationship in um, such a gracious and self-sacrificing way that you chose something that um, Scripture describes what we experience with you as being something that angels long to see that not even the heavenly beings can comprehend the grace and the mercy and the, the humility of your work in us to be your children. Lord, um, we have the opportunity to celebrate that. We have the opportunity to reflect on that on a daily basis. We have the opportunity to choose how we will respond. Lord, as we open up this new year, as we look back on last year individually, Lord, I just pray that, that your truth would ring out in our minds as to how we are to respond to you, that you would be moving in our hearts, that you would be graciously guiding our hearts to long to serve you more and to long to give you more of ourselves and to find the joy and the, the celebration of doing that. Lord, I just pray that you would bless this time in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would... Uh, I can imagine from, from the slow trickle of people in this morning, like to see a show of hands, who stayed up to ring in the new year? There you go. You know, once you have kids, you feel guilty if you don't. Um, they say the difference between youth and middle age is that in youth, you get to ring in the new year, and in middle age, you have to ring in the new year, staying up late. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, maybe you do, maybe you don't craft New Year's resolutions. But I would hope that uh, this morning from our time in the Word, we can help each other a little bit in crafting our New Year's resolutions. We're not going to be doing that here this morning, but we are going to be hopefully leaning in God's truth into those resolutions and what they should mean, what they can mean in response to his truth. Well, we're diving right back into Colossians 1, uh, now in verses 20 through 23, you'll, you'll recall uh, we're picking up in verse 19. We've, we've looked all the way through 20 together, but we're going to be dipping back into verse 20 today. 
So verse 19 reads this. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this is the passage of scripture that we're looking at today. And the first principle that I draw from here and that we can see in here is God's plan of reconciliation. In the sense you could say God's plan from the beginning when Adam and Eve were promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. And if this doesn't blow your mind like it does mine, Scripture says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So somehow prior to even sin coming into the world, those who would know Christ as their Savior through his sacrifice, God had made that plan before even the foundation of the world. So this is God's big plan of reconciliation. Scripture tells us, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now you might recall from several weeks ago, we described the fact that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. In fact, the fullness of God is pleased to make its home in Christ. And this was very significant for the hearers of this letter in Colossae because they were being confronted with a teaching that was telling them that there were all these different angelic beings that had emanated from God and that that was the only way that an evil earth could have been created from a holy God. And this was the philosophy that they were being uh, confronted with that false teachers had come into the church concerning and that Christ was just one of those many angelic beings. And so it's kind of like, well, yes, it's good that you, that you uh, seek to know Christ. It's good that you follow Christ. But look at all these other angelic beings that you're missing. And so Paul was trying to make it very clear that Scripture is very different than what uh, that they were teaching, that, that Christ is the preeminent, the supreme being, and in him all the fullness of deity dwells. And rather than trying to know all these different spirit guides, if you will, and, and the term fullness of God was spread across these spirit guides in the Gnostic teaching, Paul was pointing out the fact that everything is in Christ. All of God is in Christ. So the fullness of God was not only in Christ, but notice it's a, it's a compound verb here. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and the fullness of God through Christ to reconcile to himself all things. So 
So the fullness of God was not only dwelling in Christ, but the fullness of God was reconciling, working to reconcile through Christ. So this was a work, a plan of reconciliation of the Trinity to bring those who had turned their backs on him back to him through Christ. This is a big plan of the big triune God. To be reconciled means to simply, as, as it does in our everyday language, to be made friends again. It, and the, the idea of it is to go way back. In other words, to return back to a, to a primal unity that we once had with God. And when I say specifically to go way back, this is one of the few terms that, that Paul ever uses that has a double prefix. It means to go way back and down to it. Return. The idea is to go back to the relationship that we were meant to have with God from the very beginning. As it describes in Genesis 3 that we looked at when I first came here back in October, that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. And they were unashamed before him. This idea of reconciling is to return back to that relationship. And notice it says, to reconcile to himself. To himself. In other words, God doing the work of bringing us back to himself. It reminds me of the verse from 1 John 4.10 that it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, make, to be a propitiation for us. In other words, to allow us to appease his own wrath and allow us to have relationship with him again in a self-sacrificing and in a way that takes initiative. This is the sense of being God's plan of, being recon- of us being reconciled back to him. He didn't move away from us. We turned our backs on him. And yet he is the one making the plan and doing the work to reconcile us back to him. That is his plan. I want you to notice a theme that runs through verse 20 and 22 in the passage that we look at. Notice that when our reconciliation to God is described, it's connected to the bodily death of Christ on the cross. Notice in verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he is now reconciled. Speaking of us, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So verse 20 is pointing out that the means of our reconciliation is through the cross. And verse 22 is pointing out that that what Christ's death was constituted of was his physical body on the cross through this body of death. This This is significant because you might recall that the false teaching that the Colossian church was being confronted with was this idea that flesh was evil and spirit was good and so never, never the two should meet. And you can see how the enemy was working a degeneration of their doctrine 
through this philosophy because where is it that God in flesh met so significantly and in a way that Christ is still remains the God-man, still remains in a glorified body. It met in Christ and in his incarnation. It met in the place that we celebrate over Christmas. God and flesh coming together. And again, you can see how the Gnostic teaching was to undermine that unity. So we see why Paul is bringing them back to this idea that our reconciliation to God, our return to that relationship with God, only could come through Christ's, the God-man, dying physically on the cross. Some teachings of the Gnostics actually went as far as to, to go as far as to say, okay, oh, all right, so God took on flesh. But just before he died, just before he was, he was to go through the passion that led to his death, the Spirit of God left this man Christ. So the, the Gnostics were trying to pull apart, to separate this idea that God died for us. I think I've shared with you that there's even some pastors in the United States, prominent pastors, that claim that that the crucifixion is cosmic child abuse and they would never teach it. It's even happening today that the enemy wants to separate this idea that God became flesh in order to and very physically died for us. There's two implications linked to Paul's connecting reconciliation, our reconciliation, to the bodily death of Christ on the cross. First implication you could probably assume would be the physical death of Christ for our sins upon the cross is central to our doctrine. It's central to our doctrine. Let me read a quote to you from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. It says, Crucifixion seems to be invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them both by the Greeks and the Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victims could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were slaves or foreigners or other non-persons. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except for in extreme cases of treason. Emperor Cicero, in one of his speeches, called it a most cruel and disgusting punishment. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for, um, in, in Islam with having to do with Christian doctrine is the idea that God would allow his creation to kill him. They consider that to be completely heretical. It's not, just a, it's not a pretty doctrine. It's not something that we necessarily like to dwell on. But yet, a third of Matthew, a fourth of Mark... I'm sorry, a third of Matthew and Mark, a fourth of Luke, and half of the Gospel of John focus on the passion of Christ. 
The death of Christ for our reconciliation, the bodily death on the cross, is a central doctrine to our faith. The peace agreement between us and God was signed in the blood of his son. And this is something that Paul is trying to reiterate regarding our relationship that God has worked toward of returning us to friendship with him, that it came through the blood of Christ. The second implication from this is that the physical death of Christ for our sins upon the cross is central to a biblical self-image. You might be like, okay, where does this go? Let me ask yourself, how do you know what an object is worth at an auction? It's worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. In the cosmic auction of Calvary, God shows us just what we are worth to him. He shows us just what we are worth to him. One of my favorite um, lines in A Christmas Carol comes from O Holy Night. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. God's plan of reconciliation was extremely costly to him, but he does not regret it in any way. Paul holds it as a standard, saying, don't let these people undermine who you are in Christ. Don't let these people undermine who you are in Christ. If you know know Christ as your Savior, we should be moved by the sacrifice of Christ. We should be moved in the way that 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19 tells us. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in reverent fear during the time of your stay upon this earth, knowing that you were purchased not with perishable things like silver or gold inherited from your forefathers, but you were purchased with precious blood as of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. That's what 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19 tells us about our biblical self-image. Our God-esteem quickly becomes our self-esteem. Any problem with self-esteem begins with a problem of esteeming God and esteeming Christ because Christ is the price that was paid for us. Plain and simple. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, the purchase has been made. The relationship, in a lot of ways, everything has been set up for the relationship to be mended. And like a gift sitting up there to the Christmas tree that you experienced just a few days ago, it sits there. A relationship with Christ, purchased, paid for, wrapped with your name on it. And that's why Scripture tells us to as many as just would receive him, to those he gave the right to be called children of God. It's a gift that simply must be received. Well, Paul turns a corner here and gets very personal for us and he gets very personal with the Colossian believers. And I draw out of this the process of reconciliation. You could call it the personal process 
of reconciliation. He writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So let's focus first on this, this first stage of the personal process of reconciliation. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This first stage here is one of, prior to being reconciled, a continuous state of alienation. A continuous state of alienation. We're described as being alienated or being an enemy of God in an active mental hostility toward God of intentional estrangement from him, of intentionally saying, I don't want to be anywhere near you. Maybe some of you guys experience that. Uh, you know, holidays kind of bring that out. You kind of have the family together, and a lot of times you're kind of missing that one person. And it, it's just so obvious. It, it, a lot of times the holidays bring about that pain of estrangement of relationships. And and like that one person that just kind of refuses to show up, that's how we're described in a relationship with God of personal, intentional alienation and estrangement from Him. Uh, Notice that it's because of, but it's also leading to evil deeds. It's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Uh, We are a rolling snowball of estrangement from God before we receive Christ as our Savior. But we're estranged and it's leading to evil deeds and the evil deeds are leading to further estrangement. And I don't know if you've seen this before. Uh, My wife and I, a lot of times, you know, the conclusion will just come down to the Lord just really needs to do something in that person's heart. You know, because it's just compounding one on onto the other. And, and really, that probably describes everybody. That God just really has to break in and do something in that person's heart. So, can somebody be alienated from God and still sit in a pew? Absolutely. It's called religious Christianity. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I have... It's just my own thing. It's not making a statement about anything, but I have a hard time talking about in Christianity or as a Christian just because I I kind of feel like we're getting to a day where most, uh, a lot of people sitting in pews who would call themselves Christians are not necessarily followers of Christ. So you may just notice that I'd like, I prefer to talk in terms of followers of Christ rather than talking in terms of Christians even. But you know, this is how I would define religious Christianity. It's that it's a necessary interaction in or, with God, a necessary interaction with God in order to get from him what I need and only to give him what I have to give a necessary interaction with God in order to simply get from him what I need and only give him what I have to give. That to me would describe a person that sits in a pew or in a chair 
but yet still is estranged and alienated from God. Maybe it can look like sitting there saying, uh, you know, as Andrew Faust shared with us before Christmas, I, I don't, in his testimony, he, he didn't understand how is it that people know God the way they do. Because he, he didn't understand a relationship with God like that. It could be that that person is still alienated from him. But God is in a process, hopefully, he has a process of reconciling us to him. And, and when I, as I say that, I don't want to make that sound like everybody's on that process. By God's grace, he puts people on that process or people find that process of being reconciled to him. And it's an effective process. It's a gracious process. So, so this, this process of reconciliation kind of turns a corner. And the ESV does not do service just service to this. And it says, and you, he has now reconciled. Uh, The idea here is a very emphatic, contrasting conjunction with now. It's like, but now. But now he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Being reconciled to God is a presentable state of holiness. It's a presentable state of holiness. As we'll see, that's not just on the outside, but through and through. Notice the purpose here is that, that Jesus has in reconcile, that the God has in reconciling us in Christ's body of flesh by his death is in order to present us before God. In order to present us for, before God. So if you took out the dependent clauses and just read what I have in orange there, it's you, he has now reconciled in order to present you before him. So this, this is, I, I mean, I'm struck by this, that the purpose of Christ's death is so that he can present me to God I want to paint a picture here of both sides of this situation that this describes here. First, when it says, before him, this is a term that would describe someone coming before a judge. Someone being presented before a judge. The idea here is before his piercing, penetrating gaze. In order to come before God's perfect, holy, uncompromising piercing gaze we are presented so on, that's that's what we have on one side of this this picture being painted of us being presented to god and and notice that christ is now reconciled in order to present us and the term present means to to stand alongside of so so it's the picture of christ standing next to us uh, at a wedding, traditionally the father of the bride walks down the aisle. You know, we call that, will you take me down the aisle? Will you, will you uh, walk me down the aisle? But it has a purpose to it because at the, at the front, the minister asks, who presents this woman to this man? 
And who's standing beside her but her dad? And the father says, traditionally, her mother and I. And that's the picture of Christ presenting us before God's piercing gaze and standing beside us to present us. But the, what maybe might be truly amazing is the image that we're found in, the picture that's painted of us before God, is one we would never ever assume in our own righteousness. And that is one we are being presented before God's piercing gaze as being holy and blameless and above reproach. I mean, Paul's just stacking these terms on to establish what it means to be able to come into this relationship with God. It's in no way ever could be based on our own righteousness, but we're presented to God as being holy. And that means he sees us as holy. That means being set apart for him. He presents us as being blameless. This is a term that would have been used in the description of a lamb being brought to the temple as being without blemish. We're being presented as being set apart for him with no blemish. And one, probably my favorite term here is without reproach, above reproach. This means to be unchargeable. Not only free from blemish, but free from the chance that we might be accused and get this, of the things that we are still presently doing. Right? Because I don't know about you, but when I came to know Christ as my Savior, I did not become free of sin. I, pro- I don't live a single day free of sin. I probably don't live a single moment free of sin. But yet I am presented before God as being set apart from Him, cleaned and without blemish, and without a single charge to be brought against me. And this is important because if you recall, our enemy is called the great accuser, the accuser of the saints. What a blessing, what an amazing blessing that we have to be presented to God in this way. It reminds me of the lyrics from the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It says, Oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Not part of my sin, but the whole is nailed where? To the cross. This hymn writer understood this. But the false teachers of this day that Paul was writing into was, were teaching that Christ is not a, a sufficient savior. There is only... he. he could only, you could only achieve a partial reconciliation. But it was only by your own effort of diving into these spiritual, this spiritual knowledge and joining their group, surprisingly, um, and getting to know these spirit beings that you could gain a more fuller reconciliation and relationship with God, that you could grow closer to God. Um, so it was only by deepening these spiritual, your relationship with these spiritual beings that a person could grow closer. Let's recall though, we're told in verse 18, Christ is, is the supreme being. 
in order that he might be preeminent. The supreme being, the preeminent one, sacrificed himself for those who are his enemies. The purpose is that we might take on a righteousness that is unchargeable before the searching eyes of the pure and righteous judge who is God the Father. Does it make you feel grateful like it does me? This is a reason why I title this message A Resolution to Respond. A Resolution to Respond. Whatever resolutions you make for the new year, if you know Christ as your Savior, let what you resolve to be, what you resolve to change, be in response to the amazing gift that He is to you, to the amazing work that He has done, the complete work. Our resolutions don't need to be anything about I'm going to be more acceptable to God. Praise the Lord for that. I was listening to a speaker who was describing that a Muslim man that he was talking to keeps track of every step he would make between his home and the mosque because he knew that that one day his deeds were going to be weighed. And so he would go to the, he would find the mosque that was the furthest from his home so that he could keep track of every step he made there. How sad. But that is what religion is outside of a biblical relationship with the Creator. It could be just religious Christianity, but it's the same thing. I'm going to resolve to be a better person. Why? Because. I better start working on it. Let your resolutions be in worship and honor to him. Resolve to respond to what he is. That's really what worship is. Worship is taking his truth, consuming it, and responding to him in a way that honors who he is. Your resolutions for this year can be an act of worship to him. So we're just going to kind of graze over this, this permanence of reconciliation that we see in verse 23. Now, verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This verse could be easily misunderstood at first glance and false teaching is always done on at first glance um it can this verse could make it seem like everything we just talked about is now that so that relationship what we've gained through christ upon receiving the work that he's done is now all our keeping that is now dependent on our staying on that relationship but i think and we'll visit what i believe this verse is not teaching first i want to Visit what this verse is teaching. And, and I believe that what it's not teaching is cause, you know, what we can, I believe that what it is teaching is based on the context of what the Colossian believers are experiencing presently as Paul is writing to them. So before I confuse you any further, we're just going to dive into it. Um, so he says here, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast. 
He's referencing how strong their, the gospel is that they have put their faith in. When he describes it as being stable and steadfast, he's using architectural terms. The idea of being stable would be having a very firm foundation. And the idea of being steadfast would be enjoying the firmness of that foundation. So, to be, so their faith is, is based on a firm foundation. It is a firm foundation and they are steadfast in it in that they are able to rest in that foundation. Now, uh, as it says, your faith is stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, describing his hope for them, the, the Colossian area was actually prone to earthquakes. And it may be that he was references this, referencing this idea that his prayer for them is that they might not be able to be shaken off of that strong foundation. Um, so the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that our hope in the gospel is strong and it is ready for the challenge. It is strong and it is ready for the challenge. And his prayer for them is that they would stay on that. That they would remain on that. Um, Well, let me change that. His prayer for them, his hope for them, is that they were truly on that. From the start. We know that the members of this church were being tempted and being challenged by these false teachers and we know that members of this church were leaving it or maybe were, were still involved with it, but they were also involved in, in, a, in agreement with and following this teaching that would have caused them to, one, believe that Christ is just one of a number of angelic beings who is one of, with many of the same abilities that the others do have. And they were, they were, if they were following this false teacher, they would also be believing that the truth of the gospel is insufficient to bring us into full relationship with God. So in believing these things, without knowing their hearts, Paul is giving the Colossian readers an explanation for what is going on in these friends' hearts that they see them wandering so vastly from the truth. Now claiming that Jesus is just one of many angels and not God. Now claiming that the gospel is just, ah, well, we've heard it before. It's, it's one of many ways to the top. It's nothing new under the sun. So Paul is helping these Colossian believers to understand this is what's going on in your friends' lives as you watch them wandering away from the truth. Paul is warning that those who were led away by the false teacher were likely never saved in the first place. And without knowing the hearts of these believers, in a sense he is warning them, examine your hearts. Are you on this firm foundation that is not able to be shaken? Because if you are shaken, what does it mean? You are not on this firm foundation. He's warning them. So, and this leads us to answer this, the question of what this verse is not teaching. Paul wrote this, as I mentioned, to help the church to better understand 
what was going on in the believers' lives. Or, or basically he's saying these are non-believers who are following along with this false teaching if they're never to, to return back, if the Holy Spirit doesn't draw them back to the truth of the gospel. And he's saying these are non-believers because they are ev- the evidence of that is that they are being shaken by this false teaching and, and being drawn away. This verse is not implying that a person who is truly saved can lose their salvation. This verse is implying that a person who walks away from Christ never to return was never truly saved. Saving faith is one that perseveres through the pressures to not believe. And it's sad for me that it's very possible, this could could sound really controversial, but there are churches in the U.S. that, that people with open hearts to the gospel are coming to and not finding the gospel there. And, and, and they're, being, they're setting on a foundation that is easily shaken and dismantled. And, and I would say that those persons are never truly coming to Christ because that foundation of Christ that we step onto is stable and steadfast. Let me share with you a quote from Warren Wiersbe. Uh, on this passage, he says, Paul was saying, if you are truly saved and built on the solid foundation, Jesus Christ, then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. In other words, we are not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and thus prove that we are saved. Faith in Christ to reconcile us to God in Christ's work on the cross is a sure foundation Those who place themselves on it are able to stand strong in his grace. Those who place themselves on it are able to have their doubts answered in his mercy. This doesn't mean we don't want... Harvest cannot become a place where people are afraid to share their doubts. I want to communicate that. Because that's part of fellowship fellowshipping is not clean yourself up, don't have any doubts, and then you're ready to come in fellowship. Fellowship is a bunch of people that have challenges and a bunch of people that are living life and being challenged by life and having a hard time with life and find, because, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what makes God's grace all the more beautiful if we can be real with each other about the challenges that we're facing. So I just want to make sure that this is not a message of, hey, don't, don't start sharing any doubts of who Christ is or the, his sufficiency with other people because we're going to start thinking you're not saved or something like that. Just a side note there. So anyways, in conclusion, if you're like me, you haven't written any resolutions yet. Maybe you're giving up on them this year. Um, my resolution is very obvious to me. I put it on somewhere between October and now and it's time to take it off. But... If you're planning to do so, I want to challenge you to make what you resolve to do out of the safety and security of knowing that you are fully accepted by God, even standing before his piercing gaze and somehow in the mystery of the work of Christ, 
He sees you if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're standing on that firm foundation. He sees you as being holy and without blemish and unchargeable before him. And in gratitude, resolve what it is that you want to accomplish in worship to him in 2011. Because we stand in that grace. We stand in that acceptance. We stand in that renewed relationship with him. And that's what is ours in Christ. Being reconciled to God is really something that should affect everything that we do. Let's bow our heads. Father God, once again, I thank you. I thank you for the relationship that we have with you. To thank you just seems even so um, small compared to what you've given us in Christ, uh, compared to all that we have and all that you sacrificed. Lord, I have a hard time imagining that I am this valuable to you that you would pay your son for me. I can imagine other people here have the same struggle. But Lord, thank you that we can step out on faith no matter how valuable we feel. We can step out on what we know. And that is that you gave your son for us. In probably the most violent and despicable way that you could at the hands of despicable people like us. Father, I just pray that as we look toward and, and look back on, look toward 2012 and look back on 2011, Lord, I just um, would pray that you would allow us to do so in the safety and security of knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that um, we don't have to approach you on our works, but Lord, our works can praise you and can be a response to who you are. Lord, I just thank you for these things, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.